Welcome to the Empowered Eating and Living Podcast, where we dive into your inner world to explore all of the psychological, emotional, energetic, and spiritual components that may be influencing your struggle with food and eating. I'm your host, Sarah Emily Spears, a trained psychotherapist and energy worker who recovered from my own eating disorder. And now I help women just like you do the inner work to address the real issues keeping you stuck in your problematic eating patterns. Because I assure you, your problem with food is about way more than food. So join me and guest experts as we discuss the psychology of eating and healing and empower you with tangible steps you can take today to begin to improve your relationship with food and yourself from a place of true nourishment and care. Eliza Kingsford is a licensed psychotherapist and energy psychology practitioner who helps clients regulate their nervous system so they can get out of their own way, remove obstacles, and overcome self-sabotage. Eliza's work has been featured on Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, NBC Health, CNN Health, Health Magazine, Mind Body Green, and more. She's the author of Brain Powered Weight Loss and holds advanced certifications in numerous evidence-based modalities. Eliza combines the latest behavior science and neuroscience with cutting-edge interventions to create lasting change for her clients. She believes true healing comes when we find the intersection of the mind-body connection. I had the privilege of meeting Eliza over 10 years ago at the start of my health journey. We do very similar types of work. And so I'm really excited to have her on the podcast because she's a plethora of wisdom and knowledge, and you're really going to benefit from this conversation. Hi, Eliza. So happy to have you here. Hi, thanks for having me. This is fun. I'm excited for this conversation because I know you have such a wealth of knowledge and experience with behavioral health and weight loss and energy psychology. And we do a lot of actually similar work, but I think you take probably a slightly different approach and or perspective that I'm really excited to, to really understand your sort of way of dealing with your clients. And I know you kind of balance the like conflict between losing weight and not going on a diet. Mm-hmm. Is that, yes. am I doing that right? <laughs> no, you are actually, that's beautifully said. There's like, yes, that that's, you said it beautifully, that conflict between the desire to want to change your shape or weight or size, but also knowing some of the negative impacts that traditional restrictive dieting can have. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's a conflict there, right? Yeah. And it is really confusing because I know from my own personal experience, there's this part that really desires to just be healthy and to take good Mm -hmm. care of yourself. And Mm -hmm. then when you start to research, well, how do I do that? There's so much information and misinformation and the diet culture and anti-diet culture. And you're like stuck in confusion around how to approach Mm -hmm. this, you know? And I remember going crazy because I'm like, this should be simple. I just want to feel good. And I have literally no idea how to approach it. Oh my gosh. And can you even imagine, I mean, Sarah, when I was first, when I was really struggling with that in my own story, (laughs) um, you know, whatever dating myself, you know, in my own story was in the late nineties and there wasn't access to all of this kind of information. And even then it was still so overwhelming of all of the different books. I mean, in the late nineties, we were still like reading 
reading books about this rather than searching it on Google and finding quick blogs and Instagrammers and things like that, right? Um, and even then, it was so overwhelming with all of the conflicting information to know what was right for me. And I remember that um, deep anxiety and uh, fear really around, am I going to get this right? Am I going to get this wrong? Right. That, that took me away from any inner knowing that I had. And I was in the late nineties. I can't even imagine. I mean, I can, cause I work with it every day, but I, on this end, I can't even imagine the um, abundance of information. And like you said, misinformation that is contributing to massive confusion for everybody about how to find this place of just peace, just peace, right? With your body. Absolutely. Which is why I'm excited to have this platform to start to yeah. have a space for voices like yours to be heard because we need more and more people who are really combating the misinformation and kind of yeah. offering a little bit of relief and sanity among sort of the plethora of chaos that's out there. Yeah, yeah I agree. And I mean, thank you. And, you know, it's sort of the, to do offer and provide the platform is, um, you know, it's a, it's almost a heroic act these days. So I bow down to you. Kudos. <laughs> thank you. Well, I would love for you to share a little bit more about your experience and your struggle sort of trying to control weight or your eating, um, if you're open to sharing what that was like for you and how that sort of led you to where you are now as this expert in the field. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny, and you of all people know this so well, is that in our traditional clinical training as a therapist, we um, we don't get asked about our personal stories very much. In fact, as you know, we get trained to make sure that we're very, very selective about anything personal that we add to make sure that we're not taking away from the client experience. And, and um, I wonder if you have experienced this as well, you know, this sort of shift in a approach to um, being human as a clinician and how that can really contribute to the growth and development of our clients, which I have found is a really interesting shift over the past, I don't know, maybe 15 years or something like that. So people are asking more and more about, well, what's your story and how did you get involved? And, and um, it's been an interesting process for me to, to feel more comfortable sharing that. And I do think it's important as we, as we share, um, uh, expertise and experience, I think it's important to share the human side of ourselves. So, you know, for me, it was a, I, I grew up never feeling comfortable in my body. And what I know now, certainly as a dysregulated nervous system for my entire life, I grew up as a child, a very complex trauma. Um, I lost my mother uh, when I was one years old. And so, you know, from an attachment perspective, I have a ton of complex trauma from that, um, you know, grew up in a chaotic uh, household with a, with other complex trauma. And so what that manifested for me was a disconnection, disembodiment, and a complete discomfort in my body. But I didn't know any of that at the time. I was just really uncomfortable and really unhappy, right? Um, and I, uh, while this piece is important to me, while from the outside looking in, someone might say, I don't understand why you would be struggling with that. You know, um, looking at me, you couldn't tell that I was so deeply and terribly unhappy and ashamed of myself. Um, and so I, I 
hold that close to my heart to know that you can never tell by looking at somebody what they are struggling with internally. Um, And I struggled with that into college. I struggled with that into the beginning of my graduate school studies. And I think a lot of it um, was a I always knew I wanted to go into graduate school for psychology. I was very interested in understanding how the mind works, why we do the things we do, how we build relationships, you know, just really interested in in the human condition, really. Um, but my own struggles with food and body really had me fascinated with how do we do this? What, you know, how do we get better? How do we feel better? Um, and in my graduate school studies, I got introduced by one of my professors to um, somebody through somebody who was who was running a company for um, a clinical intervention for weight loss for for kids, which, you know, that's how you and I actually how we met, um, which we can go into. But I found it so fascinating um, to for me, while I was clinically trained in traditional eating disorders and I spent some time after my graduate studies doing um, deeper study into eating disorders at the university level and worked with traditional eating disorders, I really fell in love with the population who was struggling with, uh, you know, feeling like they were overweight in their body or struggling with overweight or obesity, as we more commonly know it. Um, and, and that passion truly led me to uh, systematically through the course of many years, figuring out how to feel more comfortable in my skin as I worked with people, helping them feel comfortable in theirs. Um, and I think it's a really important part of my journey. You know, it's been oh, gosh, 20 years now since, uh, since I started doing that work, maybe even a little bit more, um, a little over 20 years. And that full immersion into the experience with my whole self and then also learning alongside them and, you know, scientific advisory boards and whatever um, has brought this sort of wealth of knowledge of looking at weight in a, in a different perspective than I think we're traditionally taught. Yeah. And I really appreciate you sharing a little bit about your experience because I have found for myself that that humanity that you're talking about is one mm-hmm. of the things that actually attracts clients to me is because they absolutely that, that that I get it. And so same thing, like for us to know, like, oh, you really understand. And -hmm. it's through the struggle that you've found this motivation and this drive to really understand this and figure out through your own sort of experimentation with self, what actually is at play here? And what are some of the solutions that maybe we're overlooking or that are missed through the traditional lens? Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. I had um, quoted, and this might not be an exact quote, but I took this off your website that you said, healing the source of suffering is the most important component in your battle with your body. And so I'm curious what from your own personal and professional experience you sort of concluded is at the source of that suffering. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that statement comes from this place that I think, you know, through the history of let's call it popularized dieting, the focus has been to look at the external factors, right? What is the food that we're putting in our body? What is the exercise that we're completing? You know, we have wearables that tell us calories and then, you know, what kind of workout we did and all that. So there's all these external factors and the focus about 
how we choose food, why we choose food, you know, what food to choose and what movement to choose has all been, has all been about this sort of external, um, with this external lens, I guess, is the way I describe that. And what I have found in the course of my work with people is that while the external lens are still factors, I mean, we, they're, we'll, we'll never be able to, um, get away from, yes, our bodies are dependent on what we, you know, put in them and then, you know, whether or not we move them, that still is true. The external factors matter. Um, it's the internal factors that influence how we choose food, how much food we choose, what kinds of food we choose. Um, and it's internal factors, everything from biology to the nervous system, to our psychology, um, and the way that those things interact, right? And so it's not just as simple as saying, well, eat this, not that, which we all know, I think, to this point now, right? We, I think we all get that, but it's not quite as simple as that. Um, but I don't think everybody understands the way that the internal factors influence one another and then influence the external factors. And so we keep just focusing on what food, what movement, and maybe we do like, it's popular now to talk a little bit about mindset and it's popular now to talk a little bit. I think people use the word nervous system, but maybe don't totally understand how that means or how it, you know, it all interacts with each other. So when I talk about healing the source of our suffering, it's kind of like, you got to go under the hood and, and look at what's underneath there. Um, because, you know, like you were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, if we don't do that, it just leaves people feeling so frustrated and hopeless. And why isn't this working for me? And will anything ever work for me? It's because we're, we're missing what's under the hood. We're missing the source of it all. When we just look at those external factors, you know, totally. I always say if up until now, your only solution has been to try and control food. Mm then you will continue to stay stuck because you are missing the underlying issues that are motivating and driving the potentially out of control eating behaviors or obsession with food or the food cravings. And so, yeah. you know, that's why I've shifted my focus to doing the inner work for eating issues similar yeah. to you yeah. and kind of pointed to some of those inner factors, one being the nervous system. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you can speak a little bit more to that and sort yeah. of how you approach exploring the role between the nervous system and eating behaviors. Yeah. Um, I will try and be succinct when I talk and about the nervous system. We've a whole podcast talking about like any Absolutely. one of these topics. So we're really yeah. doing like a speed dating interview right now of these, <laughs> these topics. So yeah, I'm happy for you. That's to a perfect way to put it. Speed really? dating. We're speed dating. We're speed, speed dating. And please take as much time as you need to really, you know, do this justice if it feels important to you. Yeah. Um, the nervous system. Uh, I have a, a friend that I do, a friend and colleague that I do some work with, and she calls me the neuro nerd. Um, and I love, I actually, I take it, I take that with pride um, because I love understanding the um, intersection between sort of the, the neuroscience and neurobiology and our physiology and how that truly um, impacts quite literally 
a direct link to our food decisions, right? And and how we make food decisions and how much food and what kinds of food and all that kind of stuff. That's that fascinates me, right? It almost feels like a, an unlock or something. Um, but the nervous system, especially as I have gotten deep in the trenches of doing nervous system work, mostly from a polyvagal informed um, theory perspective. And uh, really, if I were to oversimplify my view of the nervous system and its role in our weight and our body, it's that we know that our nervous system is always scanning the environment looking for signs of safety and danger always at all times right now, while we're talking, you know, at, at all times, that's what's ha- that's our nervous system job. I'm by the way, oversimplifying all of this because we're speed dating. Um, but the nervous system's job is to constantly scan the environment for cues of safety and danger. And the problem is that again, a gross oversimplification, but the problem is that the way our current environment, our culture, our structure of life, our pace of life, the way that it's set up is that it's constantly giving the nervous system miscues of danger kind of all day long, right? A Everything from a fight with your spouse to being stuck in traffic to, you know, true com, you know complex trauma that early childhood adverse childhood experiences all of it right all of these different factors in the way that we do life right now are constantly giving the nervous system cues that it's in danger all the time and i would venture to say that you know i don't have the research study to support it but i'd like to know where it is is that you know something like what 60 to 80 percent of people probably live in a chronically activated sympathetic nervous system state most of the day. Now, how does that relate to food choices? Well, a couple of things. When our nervous system is chronically activated, it is also chronically looking for a way to deactivate, right? And chronically looking for a way for us to calm down. As you can imagine, there is food is one of those sources that helps us to, mm, I wouldn't say deactivate the nervous system, but I would say that certain types of food help turn down what we know as the threat response system so that we quote, feel better temporarily. That's just one piece, right? Another piece is that when people are really struggling with their weight, um, one of the things they do, like you said, is try to control, 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 right? If I control everything, well, that control signals to the body this feeling of danger, right? What's wrong? Why are we trying to control everything all the time? And one of the biggest pieces is that when the body feels like it's in danger, constantly in threat, it doesn't want to let go of weight, right? Because your adiposity, your body weight is survival, to the nervous system. Having body weight means you are alive to a very primitive nervous system. So if you are constantly cueing your body into danger signals all day long, it's going to be really resistant to letting weight go. It's going to cue you to eat certain types of food and certain amounts so that it can have adiposity so it won't die, right? Like these are just a few of the really important factors that are directly related to whether or not you're, you have the ability to lose weight, to what types of food you're eating, to how much you're eating. I mean, that's just scratching the surface. There's so much more to it, right? Absolutely. And if you're living in this chronic state of an activated nervous system, a lot of times 
in my own experience, you don't even realize that you are. I remember when Definitely. I started to do my healing journey, I went to the doctor and they did a test, a bunch of different tests for hormones, but one of them was a cortisol test. And my mm -hmm. cortisol labs came back and they were through the roof. Yeah. And if you had asked me, am I in a chronic state of stress? I would have said no. I'm fine. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally fine. No, I'm not stressed. Yeah. Everything's good. Yes. And so it's really this actually super important aspect that we need to address that many people don't even consider as a factor because yeah. we're yeah. just used to it. Like our chronic stress is now just feels like the baseline of what normal it feels is. like baseline. That's exactly right. And your baseline, your baseline starts to grow. It's almost like tolerance with alcohol or, you know, drugs of addiction and things like that. Your tolerance starts to starts to grow as a protective mechanism for the nervous system because it feels chronically activated. That doesn't feel safe either. So it raises your tolerance, raises your baseline. So just like you said, you're walking around going, it's it's fine. I I've got everything under control. You don't even realize that things are activated, but to your point, um, in the body, it's still taking vital and valuable resources away from more parasympathetic states, right? So the slowdown, the digestion, the healthy digestion, the cell regeneration, the recovery, the immune system functioning, all of that stuff requires us to be in a restful, slow down state. If you are chronically activated, you are chronically taking resources away from those states, which means we have higher um, uh, prevalence of autoimmune disorders, chronic diseases, diabetes, cancer, heart disease, uh, you know, gut issues on and on and on and on, because these resources are being sent to your nervous system activation and away from all of that rest, digest and repair. So again, I could talk about this all day long, but that is a big factor, right? And it's so helpful how you're describing it to really paint the picture of like how vital the nervous system is in just mm -hmm. all aspects of health, physical, how the physical body is functioning and the health of your physical body and maybe physical health ailments you're struggling with. And then the behavioral side of things and the yes. emotional side of things. And, you know, when I'm working with clients, I really find that just even educating them about this is so mm -hmm. helpful because it, it gives you the opportunity to have some compassion for yourself because it's like your brain is turning to food for a really adaptive yes. reason and there's a yeah. function behind it and it's not yeah. a matter of no willpower. And when you understand that, you can start to work with your body and nervous system, not trying to like use force to yeah. overcome it. I love that. Yes, yes, it's so true is that it helps people go, oh, this isn't a moral or personal failing on my part my literal biochemistry is designed for me to behave this way when these, you know, when we start to put those pieces together. I love that. I do. I agree that it helps. It helps my clients. Um, it helps them get into that parasympathetic state and say, oh, okay. A, there's hope. Um, B, I can understand this in a different way. It's, there's not something just wrong with me. I'm not just out of willpower, right? When they can start to put all of the factors together um, and start to pay attention to their nervous system in a different way. Um, truly, I think healing, healing, recovery, however you want to say it, um, happens mm, quicker than people think once they 
have those pieces that they're educated about and then can start to, you know, I'm sure you help them put them into practice. Um, it doesn't have to take the decade that it took your nervous system to get activated to get back into a place of um, rest and repair, right? Absolutely. Which isn't to say it's also going to be cured in a month, right? There is still time and you do have right. intentional steps to work on working with the nervous system and helping to yeah. sort of bring it back into that parasympathetic state. And so it's, it's one of the key pieces on anyone who's on this recovery journey, because mm-hmm. if you're missing the nervous system component, you are going to really find yourself, I think, continually struggling, struggling for a long time. And, and most people have, most people who come to us have been struggling decades, if not their whole yes. life, you know, since childhood. And so yeah. to, to know that this is a component that could make a really profound difference should hopefully be inspiring for many. Mm, yeah, I agree. What do you find in your own work are some of the key maybe practices or tools or processes that you have found to really support somebody in going from this really activated, dysregulated state to a more regulated nervous system place? Yeah, good question. Um, I feel like, well, you said one of the most important pieces is just some education on what the nervous system even is, what are our different nervous system states? How can I tell which state I'm in? (laughs) How can I start to observe when, how often, and what it feels like to flow between the states, which we all do all day long. So it's just sort of bringing a, 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 like you said, a very intentional amount of awareness to the process. Um, And everybody is on their own, what I find sort of continuum of, what they have access to when they come to me. So some people are so disembodied that to ask them to recognize, well, what it feels like to be in an activated state, sort of don't even know what that means. And so there's a lot of different exercises to help them go, oh, that is what it feels like in my body. Maybe I've never felt something in my body before because I'm so cognitive as a protective mechanism, you know? So I think it's the education and then practices of awareness, um, intentional, you know, intentional practices of awareness. Um, I know you and I both like to use tapping. Um, I don't know how often or how much you use it, but certainly I think um, truly clinical EFT, sometimes more commonly known as tapping, um, can be one of the incredibly impactful ways, both as a practitioner-led process, right? So I think there's you know this, but your listeners might not, but there is a difference between what is out there on Instagram right now about everybody's tapping. That's, it's a palliative intervention and it has some utility and that's good. Um, But true clinical EFT um, has a different process, has a different method and, um, you know, has it has, mm, well, some some solid empirical evidence behind it and being able to move people from point A to point B. So there is a difference between clinical EFT and just sort of like the tapping that everybody's into these days. Um, not that, it, I guess what I would say is I love that there is that palliative form of tapping. In other words, if you're 
not with a practitioner and you're not feeling very good, you can use tapping on your own to help um, release some charge and feel better. And that's fantastic. I love that my clients have something that they can use on their own and do by themselves. They don't need me. They don't need to be in the office. You know, we can teach them that. And there is an opportunity to do some really deep dive memory reconsolidation with, you know, true clinical EFT tapping, where it releases the emotional charge on some of this nervous system activation so that they can walk through life in a different way from day to day. Um, So I use tapping um, pretty regularly in my practice, both from a palliative perspective and clinical EFT um, observation, intention, education. Did I give enough tools? There are more. Yeah, no, those are, (laughs) I mean, I think for me, those are some of the big ones that I use as well, which is we need to have awareness of what's happening because we can't then use a tool like tapping in the moment that it's needed if we are in an unconscious state and not even recognizing that something's been activated inside of me. Definitely. And I also appreciate that you're really highlighting that there is a noticeable difference between the Instagram tapping and clinical EFT because I've even found myself, you know, I just posted a two minute tapping video And I like, I'm like, is this, should I even release this? Because I know it doesn't really even scratch the surface of getting to the root of what is influencing how someone is thinking, feeling, and behaving. So on the one hand, I do want to spread the knowledge. And on the other hand, we can go so much deeper and really do some good healing work when you're working with a a trained practitioner. And you mentioned how, you know, part of the process that we're doing is this memory reconfiguration. And I don't know that many people even know what you mean by that. We know how juicy that is in really (laughs) radical changes and how you feel in the present and how activated you can get. Can you maybe explain a little bit more around what that, that specific piece is? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think there's utility in in both in in people spreading the word about tapping. I think the only downside to it, um, not from your video, I think in other videos that I have that I've seen, is that um, if people don't understand that just the sort of um, uh, you know, tapping to make yourself feel better, just going through the points without, you know, a, 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 the real clinical EFT approach. Um, sometimes people will try it and say, oh, well, that didn't really work for me. Right. And they, and they, and they put them together and they miss out on this other, you know, amazing experience that they can have because they, tried a, a quick Instagram video that was doing some tapping. It didn't really do much for them in the moment. And then they move on from the intervention, which is not the same thing. So I love that we're talking about it here so that people just know, right, that there's, you can do some tapping on your own and it is great and there is a benefit to it, but there is this whole other realm. Um, it's really like, sorry, this is just coming up as I'm, yeah, no. it's like brushing your teeth. Like Mm. we all brush our teeth every day as part of this hygiene, but we still go to the dentist to get like that deep cleaning. Yes. So it's not to say like, don't use this tool because there's still benefit when you use it yourself. For sure. And don't miss the opportunity to really get like the deep clean that that we can get with a practitioner. And I've had clients who have said that to me, who have said, you know, I tried some tapping and didn't really notice anything. Yeah. One session and they're like, whoa. Well, yeah, never access, you know, that depth of emotion or gone to a place like that. And so it is really beautiful 
when you maintain this openness to understand that there's so much more to be discovered and ways that you can benefit from this when you are willing to seek the right help. Definitely. Yeah, I completely agree. And to your question about um, sort of the memory reconsolidation. So the way I explain um, tapping to people is that we all have experiences in life that get us activated into our nervous system. And we start to sort of climb a hill with the nervous system in that activation. You can sort of feel the activation, right? The amygdala gets stimulated. We can kind of climb this hill. And then in, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to use the, the term normal, but what does that really even mean? In a normal, um, uh, in a normal situation, we have the ability to climb that hill and then come over the other side and complete the stress response process. Right. But for, Many of us, I'm going to argue to say all of us, there are times when we don't complete that stress response process and we get stuck up at the top of the hill in that activation, right? And we don't complete it all the way through. The body doesn't release the chemical charge of that emotion. I think it's something that people don't really understand is that when we have emotions, it's an actual electromagnetic chemical charge in the body. There's, there is a physical, there's a physiological response to emotion. It's not just, you know, some feeling that we have, right? So when that charge doesn't get released in the body, it gets held somewhere, stored somewhere. And then you can be 20 years later walking down the street and something can trigger you into that, that memory, into that charge. And that charge is still in there, right? So that's how our sort of past memories influence our current experience. Well, with tapping, when we go through the process, um, you know, there's, I'm sure you know, there's very, there's various techniques and different types to go through the process. When we go through these processes, it's releasing that emotional charge. It's reconsolidating where in the body it's holding that memory and letting that charge come all the way through so that now you walk down the same street and most of my clients experience it as it's not, sometimes there's these huge releases, but sometimes it just feels like, oh, that was there before. It's not there now. How interesting. I, I just, I feel almost like I feel nothing or I feel um, like, I can't believe I was bothered by that before now, because now it's just, it's just not there. I'm, I'm just not bothered. Right. Um, I'm, you're smiling. I'm sure you've had the same experiences. Um, and so it's a beautiful experience to to help somebody not live today from the experience they had years ago. And it's a, they feel a total release shift change in the body where um, it's, it's just so, it's so palpable. It's so noticeable, right? Yeah. And I, I love this so much. I'm smiling because this sort of work just lights me up from the inside because I know how powerful it is. And, and what's so key here is this, recognition that even if we don't even cognitively have the memory the body holds the memory so true and it doesn't go away no matter how long ago the events happened yeah you know, sometimes my clients are so surprised at the events that arise i joke when we tap into the subconscious using tapping like we have no idea actually what memories are going to reveal themselves but yeah. it's when we start to work with the body somatically, like you start to get the information that's been stored 
and yes. you start to recognize, wow, I didn't even realize the things I was holding on to. And yeah. then there's this sort of neutralization is how I describe yeah. it. Great word. Yes. Or it's like, yeah. oh, there isn't, I could remember this now, but there isn't the same activation or charge. Yes. Yes. And so then in the present moment, you know, as our normal daily stressors happen, it's not reactivating or flooding us with even more charge from these past memories. So yeah. I find that it's easier to stay in that regulated state or to then use the tools and not just unconsciously and automatically revert back to going to the cupboards, using food yes. to slow down the feeling or try to make this yes. feel better. Because a lot of times the process that's happening is happening in the body and it's not happening in our, in our consciousness. Yes. Oh, I love it. I mean, I just so much yes to that. And when, and I think we're both, we both get so excited about it because when, when the clients experience that sort of, oh, I just don't go to the cupboard anymore. That is freedom rather than the, I'm trying not to go to the cupboard and I've hid the things and I, I locked it away and then I didn't buy it. And then I'm afraid I'm going to binge on it. That's a totally different experience than I am in a more regulated state. I am more connected or embodied, or I've released the charge, or I love the word you use. It's now neutralized. I don't even go to the cupboard anymore. Or if I do, I go with choice and intention and peace and so much freedom around my ability to make a different decision. Whereas before I was white knuckling through my day, right? And what freedom is that, right? Absolutely. It's like this return to this sense of normal, even though you said like, really what is normal? But for many people, it's this, oh, I'm not constantly fighting this urge. I'm not yeah. consumed by these thoughts all day long. I'm actually just kind of thinking about food when it's actually time to eat. Yeah. And oh, just living my life. And wow, that is so freeing to be yeah. able to arrive to that place. And yeah. most people would never even realize that what happened to me when I was five or 10 is yeah. actually part of why I've been yes. in this pattern for so long. You know, yes. it's really always funny to see people's reactions because it, it just doesn't make sense how this could work. Yeah. And when, you know, as you're describing and talking about the role of the nervous system, it really does make sense. Yeah. These are essential pieces that need to be looked at. If you're struggling with food and eating issues and you want insight as to why, then I highly recommend you download and take the Empowered Eating Blueprint Quiz that I've created to help you identify which of the five bodies of health that's physical, mental, emotional, energetic, and soul bodies may be at play for you and that you would benefit from addressing on your healing journey. The first step to change is self-awareness, and this quiz is designed to give you that. Click the link in the show notes to access the quiz now. Oh, you make such a good point that I think previously when people would think about, oh, well, what happened when I was five is, you know, it, it would feel so nebulous. What does that even mean? What happened when I was five is impacting me now. You know, there's just sort of, it doesn't make sense. I can't connect to why I don't, I don't even remember what happened when I was five. How could that be informing my behavior? But when you start to learn about what chemicals go through your body with emotions, how the body stores those chemicals if the nervous system process doesn't go all the way through in a stress response. And when you start to equate it to things like think about animals in the wild and after they've gone on a massive chase, you see them shake, right? They shake to discharge 
all of the, the electromagnetic signals that were going through their body, which allowed them to run really fast. And they shake and they discharge it all. And you can, when you see that and you go, oh, wow, that is how the nervous system is designed to discharge all of this energy. We don't do that. Why? Because we have this beautiful part of our brain that was developed that allows us to think and make stories and meaning. And we like shut off the access to our natural ability to discharge this emotion and we store it instead. And I think when people understand it from sort of almost a I don't know if it's scientific perspective or something that makes it less nebulous and kind of out there and too much emotion involved, you know, they really start to connect to, oh, how interesting all of my experiences previously inform my current behaviors, beliefs, you know, choices. That's, that's a mind blowing place to get to, you know, it is. And then without awareness, you know, this is one reason why people sometimes criticize just traditional talk therapy is that, Mm. well, then talking about all the memories isn't necessarily going to do anything to, to change how the nervous system is holding yeah. these chemicals, right? And yes. so that's why bringing in a tool like emotional freedom technique is yeah. valuable because it's actually working to support the body and the nervous system in, yeah. in making the improvements it needs to make. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's a whole another rabbit hole that I would love to go down with you someday, but yes, this, this, I, I, the traditional form of talk therapy um, I have found in my practice and my experience, you know, over the last 20 some years is I actually find it very minimally useful um, for a number of reasons and have really gotten away from it um, in a very intentional sort of push away from it way um, because of these things. It's not addressing the nervous system. It's not um, and, and in some ways, I think sometimes it gets people more stuck in their stories because they just get solidified in them and, and wear those grooves over and over and over again. This is why I, I am how I am. This is why I am how I am. It doesn't help us change and come up and out of that. So, yeah, I agree. I've also sort of started to veer away from the more traditional path, although there is, I think, initially some benefit in getting the awareness and For having sure. a being who is like offering us that empathy and holding us in in safety and really listening and reflecting. And then we reach a point where we get it and we want to do something about it. Yeah. It's like, what what is now the deeper part of this process and healing for myself that to your point, doesn't have to now take a decade because, Oh, I understand what's going on. And, and I get to empower myself with the right support to help me really do some powerful healing work. Yeah. So true. Now, in your work, you talk about intentional eating. Mm. What do you mean by that? <laughs> yes, the intentional eating. Um, I think, and I actually would be curious to know your perspective on this as, you know, we have similar trainings um, from a you know sort of clinical psych background, but um I think people make an assumption that as a therapist, that my lens about food is more towards intuitive eating. And um, what I will say is that I always say this, you know, um, if you found a way of eating that brings you peace and joy and ease, that works for you. Fantastic. That's my goal for everybody. That's what I want for them. And 
in my practice and in the um, you know populations that I've worked with for the for the past two decades or more, what I found is that this this um, methodology or ideology or however you want to say it of intent of intuitive eating has not worked for um, folks that that I have worked with, and yet. Um, well, intuitive eating in the sense that, um, uh, you know, kind of no foods are off limit. There are no bad foods. Um, you know, sort of, we need to be able to eat sort of whatever we want. Um, and, and almost this idea of if you were doing any type of, um, what they would call quote restriction or saying no to things that you must be a victim of diet culture and you know you're doing it for the wrong reasons right this I'm oversimplifying things and I think some people would at me for some of the things that I'm saying but um this is you know the experience that I have had um and so However, on the other side of it, based on everything that we have just talked about, the old rhetoric of just eat 1200 calories a day, eat less, move more, diet, 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 control, 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 doesn't work from a nervous system perspective. And so there has to be a place in the middle where if you are, and you know, this is what support is for, is to help you get to a place where we understand your reasoning for wanting to change your shape and size and body and lose weight and all those kinds of things, making sure that it's from a, an aligned perspective and we work on the nervous system and we work on, you know, many, 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 many factors. But let's say that, and there are, there are millions of people out there who have a desire to lose weight because they just want to, right? They, feel better and they feel like they look better. And this is okay. In, in my opinion, and in my world, when we, when we look at it from these healthy ways, there has to be a way of managing our food that does not put us into a nervous system state of restriction or deprivation, but also for the people that I work with, they say, look, when I take all the reins off, that doesn't feel good to me either because because of our biochemistry, we are all geared towards eating a certain type of food and a certain amount of food. And, you know, the way our food system is designed right now with processed foods are all of our bodies are looking to get as much processed food in it as possible. That's just kind of the way our food industry is. So there has to be this middle ground and I, and there is a middle ground. Um, and so for me, intentional eating comes from this place where it, where we are saying Yes, and saying no from a place of alignment and intention, right? And so you can say no, I always use this example, you can say no to a donut from a place of, I can't have that, I'm restricted, I'm deprived, it doesn't fit into my calories for today, I'm not allowed to, I shouldn't do that, why can't I, you know, why does everybody else get to have a donut but me, right? You could say no from that place, or you can say no from a place that says, you know what? Yeah. Donuts always kind of look good, but that doesn't support me today. Um, I know once I start eating donuts, it's really hard for me to stop. I don't like that feeling. Um, I don't want to eat the donut because actually it's not really that worth it. That one's kind of dry and, you know, it doesn't really taste that good. You can say no from a place of alignment and intention and not be in restriction or deprivation or a victim of diet culture. Right. So, where we get to um, in my work is, is understanding what that no feels like, what an aligned no and an intentional no feels like and making intentional decisions about food that line up with making you feel like the highest and best version of yourself.
And if the highest and best version of yourself happens to be 50 pounds less, I don't care. That's, you know, who am I to judge if you feel your highest and best version of yourself is in a smaller or lighter body than you are right now? And if the highest and best version of yourself is in the exact body that you are right now, the point is not what the scale says. The point is how you feel about yourself, whether or not you are in alignment, whether or not you feel like you are in a dysregulated or regulated state, whether or not you feel like you're making, you know, peaceful and easy and freedom decisions around food, right? That's my focus, not so much, well, you're either allowed to lose weight or you're not allowed to lose weight, which I think so much of the diet industry is focused on that. We shouldn't be wanting to lose weight or, you know, I want to lose weight. We're both of them are missing the point, right? It's this internal perspective. I kind of got off on a tangent there. And I have so many questions <laughs> about what you've just shared. So the first is, you know, it really sounds like your perspective is this landing in the middle of that all or nothing. Where yeah. I'm either everything's on the table and kind of free for all, or the nothing where I've, you know, created these food rules and I've really told myself everything I can't have. And so you're trying to empower someone to really find the middle ground and have that be aligned to their own sort of internal guide. Yep. And I'm curious, this idea of like what a no feels like, Yeah. you're teaching them to really feel within themselves, like a somatic sort of felt sense experience of a yes or no. Yes, absolutely. And because um, the all or nothing perspective, so the all perspective, for instance, I have, I I had been working with a client who had done, who had swung both ways, right? So there was an original, um, it was very diet mentality and restrict, 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 which led to a lot of um, sort of emotional upheaval, deprivation, lost a lot of weight, but then pendulum swung into the all mentality, which was, it, it was everything, you know, health at every size. Don't tell me what to eat. I can eat whatever I want. Everything is good for me. Nothing is bad for me. Um, don't come at me with your weight loss stuff. Right? It, it swung both ways, right? They were both very extreme. And by the time she got to me, true story. By the time she got to me, um, she was at such a significant weight that her doctors were almost not going to do a surgery that was necessary for her because it was at such a high risk, right? All of her markers were at such a high risk, truly, right? I know we talk a lot about how size is not, you know, directly correlated with size is not causational to health, right? But in this instance, her markers and levels were so high um, that now she was coming and saying, okay, I got to somewhere in the middle, I have to find somewhere in the middle. Um, And it was an extreme example of extreme dieting did not work for her. Letting go of that did not work for her either. It was almost this um, rebellion again, this is what I see in the body positive and health at every size spaces, the rebellion against the diet culture has swung us to this place where now I'm so terrified that if I do say no to food, that I am stuck in diet culture, right? That that is an indicate indicator that I'm 
dieting or stuck in diet culture. And, you know, now I'm going to go back down that path. There was fear over here and there's fear over here. And the middle path is what we're looking for. So to your question of um, learning to listen to that, no, all of the work that she and I have done together um, has unraveled and untangled. And she really has gotten clear about no taking all the reins off and letting all the quote rules go that didn't feel good either i was overstuffing myself i was eating foods that made me feel like crap i gained 100 pounds within 6 months which is you know a a did not feel good to her from a joint perspective from a muscle perspective from a, a an emotional perspective and we had to relearn this sense of can i say no and not have it be from a place of diet culture, because diet culture told me I wanted to lose weight. She had to come back to this place where she said, Eliza, I don't want to be this weight. This has nothing to do with diet culture and society says I have to look like this. It's me that says, I don't feel good here. And so, yes, we, um, you know, did the work to untangle what an aligned no meant um, and what an aligned yes meant, right? what she was taught with the sort of anti-diet culture was that everything is a yes, right? We want to make sure everything is a yes. When she really got clear about it, she went, no, not everything is a yes, right? There are some things that, that make me feel like my highest and best version of myself and many, 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 many things that don't, right? Yeah. And Oh, so much about this that I love, but it's really getting away from the cognitive belief of what is the right choice and going into the body and really being embodied again and listening to the wisdom and the knowing of your specific body, which for you on any given day or any different stage of your life may require different foods or different nutrients to feel its best. Right. And so this static, there isn't a right, wrong way to eat if you're really starting to become in tune with your unique body and being. Yes. And you are 100% correct. And the other piece of this that is, that I'm really passionate about is that because of everything that we just talked about earlier, the nervous system, the biochemistry being involved in food decisions, et cetera, your brain and body, um, picks up cues from the system, the the nervous system, and then drives you towards what type of food, how much food, you know, all of that that you want to eat. Some people talk about intuitive eating, like if we just listen carefully enough, our body will tell us what we want to eat. I'm going to argue that that's not true. That when we are, anytime you go somewhere where there's a lot of processed food, the visual cues of that processed food is taking over a part of your brain and stimulating it such that you have a desire to eat that food because of the way that those ingredients are combined. That is, that is acting on your biology in a way that's not intuitive. It's from a biochemical standpoint. And so Um, While I agree that we need to become more in tune with our body's needs, this is why I also help people practice sort of flexing their no muscle, because just understanding that, look, you know, um, pizza, donuts, 
ultra processed foods are always going to be desirable to us. That's the way that they act on our brain. It's okay. I'm not demonizing them. They're not good or bad, but we need to know that they are always going to be more desirable to your brain chemistry than broccoli and celery and carrots. It's the optimal foraging strategy. Your brain knows that you're going to get more energy from that. That knows it's going to get it quicker. It knows it's going to get it longer. And so it's always going to cue you to eat those things. That's not an intuitive response. That is a biochemical response. That's your physiology saying, in order for me to survive, I need to eat as much calories as I can. And I would like them to be quick energy calories. And I would like them to be dense calories so that I could stay alive for longer. Again, we don't want to demonize this process, but sometimes what that means is even though my body might be saying I'm super into that pizza, I flex my no muscle and say, yeah, you know what? I'm going to say no to that because I don't like the shame and guilt I feel afterwards. I don't like the fact that once I start eating pizza, it seems like I end up with five slices. So I think I'm going to say no instead of ending up with the five slices. There's uh, so, so I... I love what you said about connecting to the body process, but it's also a cognitive process to say, hey, these foods act on my brain, which make me choose them. So I'm going to use this brain to now say no, even though I kind of want it. Right? And I really appreciate the, the differentiation you're making. And as you're speaking, I actually am in agreement with you in that which is one reason why I also don't really teach intuitive eating because my own personal experience when I had binge eating and bulimia was I did not trust what my body was telling me because my body kept telling me to go binge on pizza and to throw it up. And so it was like, how can I trust yeah. the body signals that I'm getting? Because I know it's harming myself. And so yeah. I think the difference that I'm sensing and which I have also experienced is discerning between what the body from like this animal brain place is telling you versus what's almost coming from this like higher self or prefrontal cortex where we've developed the ability to have a higher awareness beyond the the sort of animal brain to to know really truly what is in our best interests or right and best for us even if we're getting the signal that's like oh but you know like you really want to go get this yeah. thing because, ooh, and, and, you know, the brain is so good at, at really keeping us fixated on certain foods yeah. and then being able to discern and connect yeah. to this really higher knowing or that personal power of kind of this truth greater than. Yes. Completely agree with that. I think you, I, man, I think you, you said that so beautifully um, that the sort of this like primitive animal brain is the thing and learning how to discern, which means inherently there are some foods, I'm not going to say good foods and bad foods, but there are foods that support us and there are foods that don't, right? And so learning to discern when my animal brain is saying, oh, I get it. You want the pizza, you want the fries, you want all those things, right? But I'm going to discern that from that higher place, from that place, it says, wait a second, for whatever reason, these things don't support me from that higher place and learning to discern between that, which means it's okay to, I don't know if I want to say label or categorize. It's okay to know hey, certain types of foods or quantity of foods or whatever doesn't really support me, right? And I think that's one of the things that, um, it's one of the places where I think 
I get feedback and criticism of, oh, well, that's not in, intuitive eating. And I say, that, that's right, because I don't teach intuitive eating. But um, because it's okay to say, yeah, this these foods, yeah, I don't really support me. I don't like my behaviors when I'm around them. I don't like how I feel when I eat them. I don't like what it does to me emotionally, physically, mentally. I'm okay with saying it's not a morally good food or bad food, but it's not supportive for me. So I'm a no right? We do that in so many areas of our lives, but now we've sort of demonized doing that with food. It's like nothing's off limits. Everything's good. There's no good food or bad food. And I'm going, listen, <laughs> we have to find for me. And again, I, I, I say so clearly if intuitive eating works for you, fantastic, do it right. This is for the people for whom it didn't work for, or or, you know, they didn't have a great experience with it. Um, so yes, it's that, you said that word beautifully, the discernment, right? Yeah. And I've encountered people who say, well, I know, right. I, I have the voice that tells me no. And then that nervous system overrides sometimes. Yeah, It's like, you literally can't stop it or control it, which is why this nervous system work is so important. If yeah. you're really struggling with food cravings or out of control eating. Yeah. And I have one last question for you, which may open a whole other, I'll try and be concise with this, but you know, you talked about, you're not attached to what someone's best and highest self is, or, you know, how they feel their best. You're really guiding them through discovering for themselves. Yeah. What would you say for someone who actually has this very strong mental attachment though, around like, I need to get to this weight in order to like myself or to feel happy or to be kind for myself. And it's almost like this just really harsh judge and pressure of where my body is now. And so I've met people who are just striving, striving, striving to get back to a former body that they used to have, which I don't know, may or may not be where they truly feel feel their best. But I sense that there's this mental fixation or belief that when I get back, get back to that body where maybe I received praise or maybe that looks more like what is socially encouraged, sure. then I'll give myself permission to feel good. I'm just curious yeah. on that because it's a tricky, tricky thing that I encounter a lot and I would love yeah. your perspective. Yeah. Um, well, you said the, the big keywords for me, which is that when, then, you know, the, when, then is always for me, the thing that, that I know that, um, it, that we're not in a good place now. And let me explain a little bit more. So when you said it, the way you described it was when I get there, then I will feel good. Right. There's that when, then, and people do this everywhere in their lives, right? When I make this much money, then I will. When I have this partner, then I will. The when then, right? Um, and that's always an indicator for me that the number on the scale or the weight or the size or the shape or whatever is just indicative of a feeling state that they have assigned to the then, right? Sort of when I get to this thing, then that will produce that feeling state for me. And so the work becomes all around the feeling state. How is it that you want to feel? What is it that you think is on the other side of that number? What do you think is on the other side of that size, right? And they'll and and for people who have been there before, they will say, well, I felt my most confident or I felt sexy or I felt, you know, whatever. People 
came on to me and I liked that or I didn't like that or whatever, you know? And if we focus on those things, okay, so I hear that you want to feel confident, joyful, sexy, um, whatever they, it's their words. They, they use their own terms and we focus on this feeling and we say, okay, great. How can you bring those feelings more to the surface? In other words, what actions, behaviors, thoughts will lead you to that feeling? Because if it's that that you want to feel, that's where our goal needs to be is what is it that I want to feel on the other side of this? Do, and then we we reverse engineer it and say, does eating this way, talking this way, looking at yourself this way in the mirror, saying these things to yourself, make you feel those things? No, none of those things make me feel that way. Great. Then we need to do something else because you are not getting to that feeling. You've heard me say this. I'm sure you've said this. You don't get to feeling good through feeling bad. It's never that the road never gets you there. Right. So we need to feel good our way to the feeling good. And we teach them how to do the things, think the things, say the thing, say the things, regulate the nervous system, understand the states, all of that process of how can I bring more of the things that I want to feel to the forefront of my life? And then they end up saying, oh, I'm, I'm feeling this way. This thing that I wanted, I feel it now on my way to where I'm going. And sometimes they still end up going to that same place. And sometimes they realize, well, I'm good now. Like I, I feel the way that I want to feel. Is that making sense? I'm not sure if I'm explaining that correctly. <laughs> and that's often how I approach it, which is, well, criticizing yourself and putting all this pressure on yourself and robbing yourself of pleasure with food in order to get to that place, in order to feel good, is leaving you feeling miserable and unhappy yeah. right now. And yeah. if the goal is, I just want to feel good, then great. Well, that's an internal job. How do we start to feel good right now in this present moment and not make that feeling good conditional on circumstances, whether it is a job, a partner, weight. Yeah. And I find people really fear that, well, if I let myself feel good now, then I'll just settle. I'll accept yes. I'll work towards the goal. And it's actually, I found the opposite. It's like, as you continue to settle into like the self-acceptance or at least a self-respect and like honoring that, like I deserve kindness and to feel good, even if I have extra weight on my body, that I'm a human being that deserves yeah. that from myself. Well, then oftentimes the you've like released the stress you've created for yourself and your body just starts to naturally yeah. release or you find, you know, your food cravings subside and it just makes the journey to there, wherever there may be so much more pleasant. Yeah. And I agreed. And I find that, um, for my most, uh, stuck clients who are very fixated on a number on the scale, um, when I explain to them how the nervous system is so powerful and will always get in the way of their desired number on the scale because their fixation on it, we do some exercises for them to feel safety and danger, cues of safety and danger. And when they can understand that a body that is consistently cued into safety and danger will not release weight, right? Um then they start to think about it differently. And as you, as you embody states of safety more often, number one, it feels good. <laughs> they, they feel much better in states of safety and they are much more to your point, much more inclined 
to um, engage in behaviors that also make them feel good, to make them feel safe, that make them feel connected, right? And those behaviors often include saying no to things like junk food and processed food and whatever. Um, but also this is where their natural state of, I shouldn't say natural, where their habitual state of binging or overeating or, you know, trying to control eating and then pendulum swinging into overeating, that kind of thing. It starts to dissipate as we look at getting into a more safety and regulated state. Um, sometimes people will argue with me and say, well, your body will let go of weight even it feels unsafe, like think about people who struggle with, you know, anorexia nervosa or those more clinically diagnosed eating disorders. And I say anorexia nervosa is, is the perfect example of why the body will hold onto weight because people who, who really, and, and you know this, I think from, from your um, training, people who really are, who are diagnosed with a, with anorexia nervosa, that is a diagnosis. It's not what we see on Instagram these days of people who are saying like, Oh, I struggle with eating. Not the same thing. People who are, who are able to blow through those cues that the body is signaling. I need food. I need more food, making it very uncomfortable to live in their bodies. And the people who are, who are diagnosed with anorexia nervosa, um, have a different chemical makeup that they can blow through those cues and not feed the body. The body makes it very uncomfortable to live in that space, right? Is an exact, um, and, and the reason why the body's making it so uncomfortable is because it's afraid it's going to die. And as we know, people truly who struggle with anorexia nervosa are at, at, nervosa are at, a, at a, a incredibly high risk for death, right? Because of their ability to ignore all the, the cues that the body's sending is an exact reason why I say that's what happens. The body says, you're not feeding me. I am going to die, right? So the body has that connection between if I don't get enough food, I am going to die. That feels very unsafe. I'm going to hold on to everything. And the, the truly um, difficult and disheartening and sad, you know, uh, place that people who are struggling with an eating disorder get to is that, um, you know, they, they blow past those cues so much so that the body really does um, start to break down. Anyways, I, I kind of got off on a tangent there, but um no, the body will not let go of weight if it feels unsafe. So we, that's for me and all of my work and all of my programs and courses, it's safety first is like our very baseline level. How do we create more safety in the body? How do we create a safe space emotionally, mentally, physically in the body? And from there, the body is able to start to reorient to your point of when they start to let go the body starts to let go, right? And we see that all the time. So amazing. I could talk to you for hours more about yeah. all this. <laughs> time flew by and here we are. Here so, we are. Oh my gosh, it really did. Yeah, so I'm gonna let you just share if people are lighting up right now, just eager to learn more about the work that you do or how they could benefit from all of your knowledge and programs, what might be a way that they can connect with you and begin to sample your work? Yeah. Thank you. Um, ElizaKingsford.com is where you can find everything. Um, and you know, we had talked about this for your listeners. If they want to try out my jumpstart program, which truly is just a 14 day 
intro into how to have these different conversations with your body, how to be aware differently in your body. Um, there's 14 short videos and worksheets and things to just kind of get into this world of changing your relationship with food and body. I'm happy to provide that for them. So I think you'll have all the sort of code and, and, and well, links and stuff in there for them. Yeah. We'll put that in the show notes for everybody yeah. so that you can access that, which is such a generous gift to share. So thank you. I'm excited for being yeah. here. Thanks for having me. I mean, I, I will tell you truly one of my favorite podcast episodes I've ever done. I love talking with you about these things and especially with someone who so deeply understands and works with and, and, you know, provides incredible value to, to your clients. So thank you. I mean, it's, it's an honor to chat with you and I, I loved being here. Yeah, thank you. For me, it just lights me up knowing there's more people in the world who are really doing this work and kind of breaking through the traditional diet mentality when approaching weight loss and healing. Like it just lights me up that you have all of this knowledge and expertise and are really supporting women through this nervous system safety piece. Mm -hmm. So thank you for what you're, you're offering. Thanks for tuning in to the Empowered Eating and Living podcast. If you liked today's episode, make sure to follow the show so you don't miss future ones. And if you loved it, then please leave a five-star review so that we can share the love with others who may benefit from listening too. 